Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 14, The Workings of Evil Spirits. This evening we're going to, not unusually, talk about some of the other sides of things. And starting with Job and his misfortunes. When you think about Job, about every wrong thing that could happen in his life happened to him. And you remember the story where his three friends came, so-called comforters, and they didn't comfort him at all. They were basically chastening him and chastising him for all these misfortunes happening to him because everybody knew in that culture that they were common covenant curses. And so he must have been guilty of something. And so they felt justified to accuse him. On and on and on. The whole book of Job, practically. And then, of course, he wasn't guilty of anything. He may have inherited dysfunctional things with the iniquities of generations. That's a possibility. But whatever it was, he took ownership of it and reversed, was able to reverse it. And we'll see how he reversed it. And also... The, the part that Satan played, and this is the first account of Satan in the Old Testament, practically, and what part that he played in it. Of course, Job was actually a type of Christ, because Christ was accused falsely for about everything, and he wasn't guilty of any of them. There lived a man in the land of Uz, sounds a little bit like Oz, doesn't it? Whose name was Job. A man perfect and upright, one who feared God and avoided evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. His property consisted of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And the East probably would have been Arabia, which in those days was much more fertile than it is now, as they can tell from tree rings and things like that. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, each one on his assigned day, and they would send and call for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So basically his kids were party animals. And so we'll see now what Job does in response. And thus it was, when the times of their feast came around, that Job sent, that Job sent and sanctified them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings for each one in turn. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this Job did continually. So what was he serving as? He was serving as a proxy savior for his children. And a wonderful example of it. Now, Job being a righteous man, I'm sure he taught them righteous principles, but it doesn't sound like they were very accepting of them. Well, there was a day when the sons of God came to to present themselves before Jehovah. Now, this is a heavenly scene. And the sons of God can also be translated children of God, came to present themselves before Jehovah because under the emperor vassal covenants that are part of the Old Testament covenants, which were common in the ancient Near East, as you know from my books and other, other lectures that I've given, a couple of times a year at least, the vassals of the emperor came to pre- present their offerings to him and to pay allegiance to him and also to, to feast at the feast that he put forth for them. 
And we see this paradigm in the Book of Mormon where the Lamanites adopted that emperor vassal paradigm among their kings and vassals. And that's why King Lamoni did not come up to the feast man. He had not, he, he withdrawn his allegiance from King Laman. So the sons of God came to present themselves before Jehovah, and Satan also came among them, because he also was a son of God. But, of course, you know, he fell from grace, so it's not sure what he was doing at that point. And Jehovah said to Satan, where have you come from? Because apparently he wasn't on his proper assignment. Then Satan answered Jehovah and said, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. In other words, not on some sacred mission, but just doing whatever he wanted. Probably making mischief wherever he could. And, and Jehovah said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Then Satan answered Jehovah and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has from every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his holdings have increased in the land. But now put forth your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So you can see what kind of character Satan is and how, you know, it sounds like he's already in that cursing mode himself and wants others to get into that mode with him. And Jehovah said to Satan, See, all that he has is in your power. So here the Lord gives him power, everything that Job has, basically, to take it away from him. And Jehovah said to Satan, I mean, only on himself, don't lay a hand. So Satan went from the presence of Jehovah. And then you know what happened in that story, that a man comes running and the herd of camels is gone. Robbers came and took them away and the beasts, and everything else, and eventually even his own family is killed, his sons and three daughters. And each time that they are, like consecutive misfortunes or covenant curses coming upon him, one guy comes to tell the tale. One guy escapes to tell the tale. And then Job, of course, goes into a deep depression or, or mourning, and then his three friends in that story come and so-called comfort him and accuse him, basically, and argue with him. But he never curses God. He stands up for his beliefs and that in the end he will see God's face, as you know from scriptures that talk that have often been quoted about Job. In the flesh I shall see God. And this is later on, the end of the book. Then Jehovah restored Job from his bondage, or from his oppression, after he had prayed for his friends. Now there you have another example of Job. Not only was he a proxy savior for his children and made atonement for their, for their transgressions in the form of animal sacrifices, he also prayed for his enemies or his so-called friends who really were acting like his enemies. He prayed for them. And this was Job's, I guess, this is probably an even harder test. But Job... Job, amazingly, was truly perfect in everything that he did, and not just before all this happened, but all through it as well. And think about it. If these things happen to you, how you might act. Moreover, Job gave, Jehovah gave Job twice as much as he had before. And all his brothers and sisters, and all who had previously been his acquaintances, came to him 
and ate meals with him in his house. And they lamented him and comforted him for all the evils Jehovah had brought on him. And this apparently happened before the Lord reversed his circumstances. Each man gave him a sum of money, I guess to get him started again, and everyone an earring of gold. So then Jehovah blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a yoke of oxen, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand she-asses, and he also had another seven sons and three daughters. So you see, this follows exactly the pattern of descend and ascent that you have in the book of Isaiah, where you go through a descend phase where the Lord tests your loyalties to him, and then when you pass all the tests under every kind of situation, then you ascend to the next spiritual level. And here Job is, is, is really, you know, a model for that. That's why the prophet Joseph Smith would be told by the Lord, he was in Liberty Jail, thou art not yet as Job, right? Because Job surpassed him at that point still. And this is from Moses. I guess um, back to uh, Job. Satan, um, the role of Satan from the beginning seems to be that of an accuser. And uh, the actual word Satan means to oppose. So he's an opposer. And he, he's set in opposition to all that is good and tries to provide you know, a choice for those who choose evil or who, who are not 100% or wholeheartedly uh, seeking to do God's will. Moses, the words of God which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain. And you know when it uses that language, you know that it's something very, very special. Usually when a person sees God face to face. Such as in the Book of Mormon, for example, Nephi saw the Lord also on a high mountain. And he saw God face to face and he talked with him. And the glory of God was upon Moses. Therefore Moses could endure his presence. So not on the natural man, but out of the body. And God spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I am the Lord God Almighty, and endless is my name, for I am without beginning of days or end of years, and is this not endless? And behold, thou art my son. Now this, this pronunciation of thou art my son is what the vassal, uh, a ceremony that is done for the vassal by the emperor, when the vassal proves loyal under all conditions, on the level that he's at. So, then he's called, and the vassal's covenant with the emperor becomes unconditional from having been conditional. So that whole paradigm goes through the Old Testament, the New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Temple Endowment. So you can make those connections yourself. And behold, thou art my son. Wherefore, look, and I will show thee the workmanship of my hands. But not all for my works are without end, and also my words, for they never cease. Wherefore no man can behold all my works, except he behold all my glory. And no man can behold all my glory, and afterwards remain in the flesh on the earth. And you remember from the ascension of Isaiah, how Isaiah goes to the seven, through the seven levels to heaven, and in the seventh heaven, he sees the Lord. 
and he sees the angel of the spirit worshiping the great glory, which is the Father, the Most High God. But he cannot see God in his full glory because it says that if he did, he could not return to the earth as a mortal man again. So this is following the same pattern. And all these scriptures are consistent with one another. And I have a work for thee, Moses, my son. Thou art in the similitude of my only begotten. This is very important now because Moses has attained this spiritual level of the similitude of his only begotten. And that is the Christ, the only begotten who is a Christ. And so now Moses also becomes a Christ figure. As we've discussed before in previous lectures, the scriptures say that Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. But it doesn't say that of Adam and Eve's descendants. Only of Moses in this case, and of the brother of Jared, I think, in the ether. And our whole quest on this earth is to keep ascending through the spiritual levels so that we might gain greater uh, image and likeness of the Lord in our countenance, in our physical countenance as well as our spiritual countenance. And that is also Paul's theme, that we should grow into the image and likeness of God as Christ himself attained the perfect image of his Father in heaven and sat on his throne and so forth. And my only begotten is and shall be the Savior, for he is full of grace and truth. So Moses, in other words, is also attaining that spiritual level, has been functioning as a proxy Savior, we don't know that backstory, but he would not be getting to this spiritual level without that. For he is full of grace and truth, so Moses also, we can assume, is growing from grace to grace, as Jesus did, or as Jesus would. But there is no God beside me, and all things are present with me, for I know them all. So he can see through every person, through every element, through every particle, he can read their thoughts. Everything is present with him simultaneously. And of course, when Moses sees these things, he's privy to that same awareness. For I know them all. And now, behold, this one thing I show it unto thee, Moses, my son, for thou art in the world, and now I show it unto thee. So this is something that everybody who ascends to that spiritual level, in other words, can look forward to, that same knowledge, and that same comprehensive view or cosmic vision that Moses had and that Enoch had, that Spencer had in the book Visions of Glory and others, and are having them today, which is a wonderful sign to me. And it came to pass that Moses looked and beheld the world upon which he was created, and Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof. In other words, all of it. And all the children of men which are and which were created of the same he greatly marveled and wondered. So in other words, they're all present to him, past, present, and future. And the presence of God withdrew from Moses, that his glory was not upon Moses, and Moses was left unto himself. Now this, of course, draws the contrast from, between what Moses sees on the one hand and now what he experiences on the other, to show him the great difference. And that he must not assume that, oh, I've, I've made it, I've, I've got it made now. And how did, he, how did he get it made, you know? Like Isaiah says, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. So this is to remind him of that. 
And as he was left unto himself, he fell to the earth. It came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto man. And he said to himself, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never supposed. Now he sees the great contrast between the one and the other. And it reminds us of the experience Alma the Younger had when he fainted and was out of the body and his spirit saw similar things. And afterwards, it took him a long time to recover. In fact, several days because he had been in a wicked state, not a righteous state like Moses. But now mine own eyes have beheld God, but not my natural, but my spiritual eyes, for my natural eyes could not have beheld, for I should have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld his face, for I was transfigured before him. Now, there are different degrees of seeing with spiritual eyes. The seeing with the spiritual eyes, uh, where it's just as sure as talking to your friend standing next to you, but you don't see face to face. You see with your spiritual eyes, and you see and are aware, completely aware of the presence, and it's just as real as your friend standing next to you. But there's also seeing with the spiritual eyes where you're actually seeing the Lord face to face or other heavenly beings face to face. That is a higher revelation or manifestation than the first one that I mentioned. So this shows that Moses is on a very high spiritual level. And I beheld his face, for I was transfigured before him. It came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. It came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God, in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory, that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God, except his glory should come upon me, and I were transfigured before him. But I can look upon thee in the natural man. Isn't that so? Surely. So in the natural man means that he is seeing a person in the natural world, as if he too was a man. Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me, or else where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God. For God said unto me, Worship God, for him only shalt thou serve. Get thee hence, Satan, deceive me not, for God said unto me, Thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. And he also gave me commandments when he called unto me out of the burning bush, saying, Call upon God in the name of mine only begotten, and worship me. And again Moses said, I will not cease to call upon God. I have other things to inquire of him. He wants further light and knowledge. For his glory has been upon me, wherefore I can judge between him and thee, Depart hence, Satan. So this is twice now that he tries to cast Satan out. But guess what? Satan's not going away. Right? Have you heard that expression, command and command again? Well, he's done it. He's doing it. And we'll see now why it won't work. Because Satan also has power, because he's one of the, or was, one of the higher angels. And so... He retains a measure of his power as much as the Lord gives it to him so that it might serve the Lord's purposes to not only oppose those on lower spiritual levels but to oppose those on higher spiritual levels. And we'll see that in other 
instances a little later on in this lecture. And now when Moses had said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth. So, because he's physical, he's ranting upon the earth. And I can, I can just imagine him, you know, throwing a temper tantrum right there in front of Moses. And commanded saying, I am the only begotten, worship me. And it came to pass that Moses began to fear exceedingly. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. Now why would Moses suddenly start fearing if it wasn't that he was almost convinced of Satan's lie? Yes, he'd seen the only begotten, and now he thought, well, maybe the circumstances have changed. Because when the Lord gives you these experiences, it's not, everything's not completely clear to you. It's a test, and not everything is, you have to, you have to figure things out. Not everything is, is absolutely, you know, easy to figure out. And so this made an, an, you know, a wedge for fear to, to creep in. And when Moses was overcome with fear, he saw where this fear would lead. And it would lead to bondage to Satan and to hell and death and so forth. And then he entered that experience of hell and saw it all. Nevertheless, so he knew this was not where he was meant to go. So calling upon God, he received strength. And he commanded, saying, Depart from me, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. So he, now he's rallying himself to deal with this threat. And now Satan began to tremble and the earth shook because his ruse hadn't, didn't work. And Moses received strength, that is more strength, and called upon God again, saying, In the name of the only begotten, depart hence Satan. So now he's getting it right. So he's casting Satan out in the name of the only begotten, which is Christ, Jesus. And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine that? Kind of this drama being enacted in front of you. And he departed hence, even from the presence of Moses, and he beheld him not. And now of this thing Moses bore record, that because of wickedness it is not had among the children of men. And why do you think it's not had among the children of men? Because of wickedness. What kind of wickedness? Because I guess if people were privy to this knowledge, if anybody could have privy to it, they might reject the whole scenario and reject Moses, Moses along with it. And so these things were withheld from the masses, from, the, from Israel, who Moses delivered out of Egypt, and only those things that were convincing of the Israelites that might bring them to an awareness of God, of their God, and to a covenant relationship with them, only those things were revealed to Israel, and not these little backstories of how Moses got to be this great prophet on a seraph level. It came to pass that when Satan had departed from the presence of Moses, that Moses lifted up his eyes unto heaven. Now remember, whenever you go through a descent phase, and it is of God, there is always the ascent phase, and there is always the comfort that comes afterwards. This is an absolute pattern of the Lord. There is always the comforting phase that comes with it, and here it is. And Moses lifted up his eyes into heaven, being filled with the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and the Son. And calling upon the name of God, he beheld his glory again, for it was upon him. And he heard a voice saying, Blessed art thou, Moses, that is more blessed than before, because he had basically, you know, had the victory over Satan. 
which everyone has to go through and, and if they want to attain the level Moses attained. For I, the Almighty, have chosen thee, and thou shalt be made stronger than many waters. So here he is getting power over the elements, which is part of what seraphim, or translated beings, are given. For they shall obtain, excuse me, for they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. And that is exactly what Moses did. He had power over the Red Sea. He had also power over the sea and the river and, and death in the wilderness because those are the powers of the Canaanites in the promised land that the Israelites inherited ascribed to their god Baal. He was the god who had the victory over the sea and over the rivers and over, over death. And here we see that Moses, a prophet of Israel, himself had those powers that they ascribed to their god Baal. So yes, he's, he's on the level that everybody would consider of a god. For lo, I am with thee, even unto the end of thy days, for thou shalt deliver my people from bondage, even Israel my chosen. Well, certainly after undergoing that ordeal, I think he would have a little confidence in the Lord. Don't you think? And it came to pass, as the voice was still speaking, Moses cast his eyes beyond the earth, yea, even all of it. And there was not a particle of it which he did not behold, discerning it by the Spirit of God. So what God discerned, he discerned. Which gave him this idea of God's perspective also. Because when you receive those kinds of experiences, you see everything not only that God sees, but you see it from his perspective as well. You see how justice and mercy are balanced in everything God does in his dealings with humanity. In, in all their details, in all their varieties, how each people, how he deals with each people, and how now he's going to deal with Israel, who Moses is going to deliver from bondage in Egypt. And he would hope, go back into time in the past to see God's coming with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with, and with Noah and the flood, and with Enoch before that, all the way back to Father Adam. And he beheld also the inhabitants thereof, and there was not a soul which he beheld not, and he discerned them by the Spirit of God, and their numbers were great, even numberless as the sands upon the seashore. He also would see how his covenant with Israel would eventually blossom into this collective covenant God made with a people who would become a savior to the rest of the inhabitants of the earth. So Moses could go forth with confidence that he was right in establishing this covenant, albeit a conditional covenant, with God's people Israel. And now we go to Enoch, also in the book of Moses. And there came generation upon generation, and Enoch was high and lifted up, even in the bosom of the Father, and of the Son of Man, the Son of Man being the only begotten. And behold, the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. And he saw angels ascending out of heaven, and he heard a loud voice saying, Woe, woe, or covenant curses, pronouncing curses, be upon the inhabitants of the earth. And he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, his angels rejoiced. Now keep this in mind when it says that the whole face of the earth was filled with darkness, because we're going to talk about that a little later on, and what that darkness is all about. 
And in he beheld angels ascending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. Now, why do you have these two things juxtaposed, where the whole face of the earth is filled with darkness, and Satan has power over all the face of the earth, and on the other hand, angels are coming down and bearing testimony, at least to some who are willing to listen, and the Holy Ghost fell upon them, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven to Zion. Because to be translated to Zion, to a translated state, means they have to ascend to the level of translated beings. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's no respecter of persons. He's not going to just pull somebody up to Zion and not others. No, they all have to go through the same journey, through the same progressions, through the same series of descents and ascents to get there, to the seraph level. So, why is it juxtaposed? Because... The great evil that existed on the earth was the evil that these translated souls had to rise above. And those would be horrible tests for them. Because, think about it, when such evil exists on the earth, the persecution of the righteous or God's elect will get just horrendous. And so they have to be willing to sustain that and love God all the way through it and remain loyal, just as Moses did, and others. Now from 1 Samuel. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him David in the midst of his brethren. And this is after Samuel finds David, the seventh of Jesse's sons, and he's with the sheep or the goats. And the Lord had told him to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons, but all the likely candidates were not the ones whom the Lord chose. Think about that as a paradigm, or as a pattern. And the Spirit of Jehovah came upon David from that day forward. So there was the anointing by the oil and then the Spirit endowment in that sequence, in that order. You'll see that in Isaiah 61, which uh, Jesus applied to himself on a spiritual level and which in Isaiah, in context of that chapter's end-time restoration and day of vengeance of God, applies to the servant who is anointed and then is endowed by the Spirit. That idea of being anointed and endowed by the Spirit, Isaiah divides in other instances of the servant in the book of Isaiah, showing that their incompleteness or the different kinds of personas that the servant fulfills, some temporal roles and some spiritual roles. And all of that's in my book, The Literary Message of Isaiah, and why that is so. And how you can figure out from that who the servant is in the book of Isaiah. And it's not... Christ, it's not Joseph Smith, and it's not John the Revelator. Whatever else uh, some persons may surmise. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the spirit of Jehovah departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Jehovah troubled him. Again, an evil spirit from Jehovah? Well, yes, because the Lord allows them and gives them power, as he did Satan over Job, to provide opposition to whoever he thinks is ready to deal with that opposition. Because the Lord has a personal plan for each one of us. And so nothing happens to any of us personally unless it is of God. And so, in this case, this was a test for Saul, which eventually he was not able to rise above. And Saul's servant said to him, See now, 
An evil spirit from God troubles you. Well, because Saul's whole heart was not toward God. Let our Lord, that's him, Saul, now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's talented at playing the harp. So when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play with his hand and you will be well. And Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So Saul, rather than dealing with his issues, you know, was basically looking for uh, an amelioration of the symptoms rather than a cure. Kind of like modern medicines that deal with symptoms and don't get to the cure ever. As um, it's mostly what pharmaceuticals are all about today. So that was Saul. That was his mindset. He was not willing to get to the root of the problem. Well, guess what? Present there was one of the persons apparently who had witnessed or had heard about Samuel's anointing David, had become acquainted with David and what kind of person he was that he could play the harp. And so he's the one now that this person recommends to Saul. Then one of the servants responded and said, I've seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's talented in playing, a mighty and valiant man, a man of war, prudent in his dealings, and a good-looking person. Jehovah is with him. Because you could tell from the spirit that was with David, God, that Jehovah is with him. Remember that phrase we've discussed it before, when the Lord is with a person, it means that he's on, basically on an elect level at that point in time. Now David hadn't done many exploits, in life, but he had slain a bear and a lion that had sacked the sheep. So he had gotten some notoriety from that. So Saul said, and, and the David and Goliath scenario had not yet happened, apparently. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took an ass laden with bread, a bottle of wine, and a kid sent it to Saul by David, his son. And David came to, to Saul and stood before him. And he, Saul, liked him very much. And he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, I request of you to let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my eyes. And it happened when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played it with his hand. Then Saul was refreshed and became well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now why would the evil spirit depart from another person because of David's playing? Well, here then you have the idea that it was David's righteousness and his presence with Saul, as it were, the vibes went on the, you know, on the music of the harp and, and basically overpowered the vibes I'm talking about of David's righteousness. And basically, the evil spirit could not stand that and so left, left Saul alone. And that is also the impact that good music can have upon evil spirits when you are under an evil influence, play good music, like the Tabernacle Choir or the spiritual music. And likely it'll, it'll hasten the departure of the evil spirits. Now we have from First Nephi, looking forward to Christ's ministry in the New Testament. Now we're looking at the workings of evil spirits, and so we're looking at different activities of evil spirits and how they're you know, relating to people, how they relate to God, and so forth. So we're getting an idea of what they can do and also their limitations. 
again to pass that the angel spake unto me again, saying, Look, and I looked, and I beheld the heavens open, and, and I saw angels descending upon the children of men. This is a Nephi's great vision. And they did minister unto them, and he spake unto me again, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the Lamb of God going forth among the children of men, and I beheld, beheld multitudes of people who were sick, who were afflicted with all manner of diseases and with devils, unclean spirits. And the angel spake and showed all these things unto me, and they were healed by the power of the Lamb, and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. Now I ask you, do we have all kinds of diseases today? Yes, we do. I don't think any of you would disagree with that. But what about devils and unclean spirits? Do we have them everywhere today? Well, where, and can you point out to some? But the moment you do, and say, that guy has an evil spirit, what happens to you? Oh, you're weird. You know, that's not a politically correct thing to say, especially not in American culture, right? Where everybody's touchy about whatever they may say to somebody that might offend them, for goodness sake. So, yes, we have these things today too, devils and unclean spirits, and they're multiplying by the day and by the hour, as you can see in the media, and as you can read about in the news, and as you can see them on the streets or anywhere. So, why aren't we casting them out today? Why aren't we doing, if we're servants of God, doing what Jesus did? Right? You ask yourself that question? I think, first of all, because we're not acknowledging that that's what they are, or nobody's coming forward and saying, please, lay your hands upon my child and cast out the evil spirit. We see that happening in Africa. We see it happening among Christians there, where they, you know, simply just acknowledge that that's a fact. This person is possessed, or this person is, you know, is troubled, and, and let's take care of it now. But do we see that easily today? Occasionally, we do. Now for Matthew. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, in the country of the Gerasenes, two persons possessed by devils met him, coming out of the tombs very fierce, so that no man might pass that way. And they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And there was some... And there was some way from them a herd of many swine feeding, so the devils besought him, saying, If you cast us out, let us go into the herd of swine. So they understood who Jesus was. Another version says, Jesus, son of the Most High God. They understood that he was coming there to cast them out. And they're not going to argue with that, because they knew he had the power. But they wanted to stay in somebody, and so even swine was better than a person. And when he asked them, you know, how, who are you? What's your name? He said, Legion. There's many of us. So the swine would do. Now keep that also in mind because evil spirits will try to possess bodies. That's how they can get the feeling of what it's like to be in a body. Whether they were disembodied spirits from before who had bodies or where they never had bodies. And he said, Go. And when they came out, they went into the herd of swine, and the entire herd of swine 
ran violently down a steep, steep slope into the sea, and they perished in the waters. But if you've ever been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, most of it is very steep going down into the, into the, uh, into the lake. And it's really not a sea of any great magnitude, somewhat like Utah Lake, I guess you'd say. From Luke. Now when Jesus commands his disciples to go out and minister to the people in his name, they too heal the sick, lay their hands upon those afflicted with evil spirits and cast them out. And so they come back, these 70 that he had set apart, returned with joy and said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through your name. It's like with, you know, with Moses. Once he called upon the name of the only begotten, he had power over Satan. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. See, I give you power over, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy. Nothing shall in any way hurt you. So, because they're fulfilling their ministry, he's even giving them increasing powers. But why would he say in the middle of that, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven? What's that there for? Well, what, do you remember how Moses, when Moses had the victory over Satan, right? Then he had greater confidence afterwards to do then, to fulfill his mission, and only then was he able to go back to Egypt and face Pharaoh because Pharaoh had been seeking his life. And now he felt empowered to face anybody. If he could face Satan, he could face Pharaoh and the Israelites and all of Pharaoh's um, soothsayers and magicians. Now imagine, when did Jesus see Satan fall from heaven? Imagine yourself when that happened. If it wasn't the great council of heaven, where the Father chose Christ above Satan as the savior of this world, and thereafter Satan fell because he rebelled, because he was prideful, he didn't want to go with the Father's program, but he wanted to take away agency from man, he beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. So what was Jesus' experience in that scenario? He would have seen that he was now empowered and Satan was disempowered, right? And so now, with God's power upon him, he could share that power with his disciples and give them power over the fallen ones too. Because it's not just Satan, it's also those who fell with him. The principle of the one and the many. And we'll see that again later on in this lecture. Luke. And it happened the next day when they had come down the hill that many people met him, as Christ, and a man of that company cried out, saying, Rabbi, I implore you to look at my son who is my only child. See, a spirit takes hold of him and he suddenly cries out. And it tears him so that he foams at the mouth and it bruises him and hardly ever departs from him. Well, what do people call that today? Epilepsy, perhaps? But in those days, they didn't know it was epilepsy. They didn't have a scientific name for anything. So this is very clever of Satan to give it all these scientific names and then to sign the whole thing, all bottle of whack of diseases to the doctors. And here you have the doctors acting as God, but really they're the arm of flesh, <clears throat> and nobody's getting cured. Practically nobody. 
So why not call it what it is and deal with it? And it bruises him and ever hardly ever departs from him. I asked your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. So I thought he gave them power over the evil spirits. You read just a moment ago. And now they couldn't do it? And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring your son here. Even as he was coming, the devil threw him down and tore him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and gave him back to his father. Now, Brother Brigham would say that all diseases are of evil spirits. And he may be right. He may be completely right. But certainly, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and that's what, what it was called, and that's what it was. And then the child became well again. And this is from Matthew, after that same occasion. And came the disciples to Jesus separately and said, Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said it to them, Because of your unbelief. For I truly say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move hence over there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. Nevertheless, this kind, that is, of evil spirit, doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. So, in other words, there are different kinds of evil spirits, and this particular one that they couldn't cast out was a stronger or more powerful one than the ones previously that they had been casting out and could still cast out. But this one was on a higher spiritual level, which meant that they themselves had to ascend to a higher spiritual level in order to gain power over that kind of evil spirit. And the only way they could do that would be through, possibly in their present uh, state, through prayer and fasting, a number of them perhaps, and giving power or ascending to the next level and then having power over it from then on, so to speak. Acts. God worked special miracles by the hand of Paul because he too healed and cast out evil spirits so that from his person were brought handkerchiefs or aprons to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Just through a handkerchief or through a napkin or an apron or something, just some object that Paul gave them, just a token of Paul of Paul's presence, of Paul's righteousness, of Paul's merits, of Paul's power with God, and of Paul's role as a proxy savior to these people. And that was enough for the Lord to perform miracles for Paul's sake with those people. So it was because of Paul's serving as a proxy savior, or willingness to serve as a proxy savior for those people and healing them, that they became well again that the evil spirits left them. But then, these guys, there were some, <laughs> these guys here that I mentioned next, think, oh, this is a good thing. We're going to cash in on that, right? Then certain reprobate Jews who were exorcists took it upon themselves. Well, you've seen exorcists. and If you've seen them on, you know, on the media, how these people go through all kinds of lengths and shoutings and horrendous machinations to try to cast out an evil spirit, most of whom just mock these people, these exorcists anyway. But that's not the way the Lord does it, is it? Took it upon themselves to call over to them in the name of Jesus those who had evil spirits, saying, we adjure you by that same Jesus whom Paul preaches. 
And you think those evil spirits left? Seven sons of Siva, a Jew, the chief of the priests did this. So they were in it together. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? In other words, you're no proxy savior. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. How about that? So their little ruse came to nothing. And this was known to all the Jews, rumors spread, and Greeks, who also dwelt at Ephesus. And fear fell on all of them, so that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Because it wasn't through them that the evil spirits left, but through the name of Christ, which Paul used, through the merits of Christ and through the merits of Paul himself. Okay, from the Book of Mormon, this is the uh, Samuel the Lamanite speaking. O oh, you wicked and perverse generation, you hardened, you stiff-necked people, the Nephites, how long will you suppose that the Lord will suffer you? Hey, how long will you suffer yourself to be led by foolish and blind guides? Remember, this is a type for our day, as President Benson pointed out. How long will you choose darkness rather than light? Yea, behold, the anger of the Lord is already kindled against you. Behold, he hath cursed this land because of your iniquity. Behold, the time cometh that he curses your riches, that they become slippery, that you cannot hold them. In the days of your poverty, you cannot retain them. In the days of your pov poverty, you shall cry unto the Lord, and in vain shall you cry, for your desolation has already come upon you, and your destruction is made sure. And then shall you weep and howl in that day, said the Lord of hosts, and then shall you lament and say, Oh, that I had repented, had not killed the prophets, and stoned them and cast them out. So we're going to see a scenario, then, if this is a type for our day, of prophets coming and warning, just like Samuel the Lamanite, and them being stoned and cast out from among the people. And when that happens, when the people completely reject the word of God and the last warnings that are given them, then basically we, or this country, will follow suit in being destroyed as, or the people of this land will be destroyed as were the Nephites and as were the Jaredites before them, to whom the same thing happened. Hey, in that day you shall say, Oh, that we have remembered the Lord our God in the day that he gave us our riches. And then they would not have become slippery, but we should lose them. For behold, our riches are gone from us. Behold, we lay a tool here, and on the morrow it is gone. And behold, our swords are taken from us in the day we have sought them for battle. Yea, we hid up our treasures, and they have slipped away from us because of the curse of the land. Oh, that we had repented in the day that the word of the Lord came up unto us, for behold, the land is cursed, and all things have become slippery, and we cannot hold them. Behold, we are surrounded by demons. Yea, we are encircled about by angels of him, who have sought to destroy our souls. Behold, our iniquities are great. O Lord, canst thou not turn away thine anger from us? And this shall be your language in those days. So can we imagine, you know, the wealth that this land has had, ourselves in the same situation, where suddenly the, the, the wealth is gone. The stock market collapses, the economy collapses, or is the dollar's devalued down to 10 cents of its value, as some have seen, uh, overnight, and things you know, are no longer the way they used to be, and everybody now is almost living into, in a third world country. 
and demons are all around us. Can you, be, you know, surround us? Keep that in mind because this prediction has been seen by others as well. Now we have devils and evil spirits, but not on the scale that we'll see then. These Gadian robbers who were among the Lamanites did infest the land insomuch that the inhabitants thereof began to hide up their treasures in the earth, and that they became slippery because the Lord had cursed the land that they could not hold them nor retain them again. So this is where it's actually coming to pass. And it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite. Now we can't imagine that yet. There is still goodness in this land. We can't imagine the power of the evil one right upon all the face of the land, where it's just kind of let loose, and it's everywhere. Uh, here we still have a great measure of the Spirit of God among us, mainly in the church. And have you noticed that you really don't see that same Holy Ghost anywhere else in the world? If you go around, you see it, you see it everywhere in the church. It's a testimony that the church is true. In spite of all its failings and weaknesses and, and you know, things that are out of order, that the Spirit of God is still in the church. It's not in the polygamous sects. It's not in the other Christians to the, to the degree at all, the same degree as it is in the church. It's very noticeable, in fact. It's in the, in the spirit and, and the ambience and the, the feeling of the people who are members of the church and living the commandments of God. Ether. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord had ceased striving with them, and Satan had full power over the hearts of the people. For they were given up into the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, that they might be destroyed. Wherefore, they went again to battle. This is talking about the Jaredites. So, again, Satan had full power at that point in, in that cycle of their history. Toward the end of the cycle, when they turn to wickedness, it increases to such a degree that it's everywhere now. Now, these are some end-time visions of evil spirits that people have had that you can see on the Internet or on another voice of warning and so forth. And they're to be found here and there. A young lady claimed to have had many dreams and visions given to her by Jesus since she was three years old to help prepare others for what is to come in this generation. In the end, she begins weeping, begging people to repent and come to God. She weeps at how few will enter into his rest because of sin and wickedness. She talks a lot, but here are some of the main and interesting points. And, and the reason I choose these are, is because they tie in with other scriptures, as we'll see. Scriptures that we've read. As a child, she was told to share these things. Jesus wants people to be warned and to repent while there's still time. She saw a group of men in different uniforms and black and white vans who very quickly ran up to houses, breaking down doors, ransacking houses, and separating families. They had no mercy, none. She heard screams and cries of loved ones. They killed many men to remove the strength of the family. Women were taken away and some were tortured and raped. They took younger men who they were going to use as a part of their army. Now think of what is happening now in the Middle East with Islamic State, that entity that is now declared a caliphate, that has a caliph, whom they call him. And this is exactly the kinds of things that they're doing. They're going into towns, villages, taking them over, doing these very things. 
removing the, the men, killing the men, beheading them, or burning them, or whatever, to, or crucifying them, to remove the strength of the family, they take the women away for their wives, they torture and rape them, and their children they take to be soldiers of their army and train them to kill, kill, kill. So this is a death cult. And you'll see it spreading throughout the Middle East in the near future. And they seem unstoppable. But the Lord is allowing this to happen. And these things have been seen and visioned by many people. And it's coming to this land. Because thus it was also among the Nephites in this land and among the Jaredites. And when evil, when apostasy becomes, reaches its ultimate degree, this is what you get. Many people were killed right in front of their family's eyes. They didn't care. They showed no compassion in taking over. Using their cold hearts and Satan as their guide. Remember what Spencer saw of Tahiti. He saw these same things. Their brutal acts could have come only from Satan himself from the depths of hell. Jesus told her that there never had been a time or slaughter such as this. Jesus told her a lot of this is already happening across the earth. God wants you to know it is coming soon to America. This is the beginning of the end. and will continue to happen until Jesus has destroyed the wicked with fire. There were demons all over. Those who were spiritually blind didn't see how the demons were rampant and how they were infesting the entire world. So this is what people don't see because they haven't been given credence to the fact, hey, these are evil spirits. These people are possessed. These people are murderers, and once they are a murderer, they want to keep murdering. They cannot stop murdering. It becomes, it becomes like a, an addiction for them. And they become the tools of Satan. And how they were infesting the entire world. Hell was literally manifesting itself. And this is what is happening right now on earth. It is all a part of God's judgments and mercies for us to repent while there is still time. Well, the worst of the worst is going to happen. But also, that is when the greatest good happens. Because then those who rise above it and remain faithful and do not deny Christ as many Christians now are being beheaded and don't deny Christ, they could deny Christ and say Muhammad is prophet. Then they would be, their lives would be spared, but they choose not to. So you have in the book of Revelation, talking about, from ancient times, about all those who would be beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Well, beheaded when? Until ISIS came along. Who was beheading anybody? Nobody was. And of course now, you see what is going on in this country as well, all the preparations for beheading that are being made in this country. So, you know, it's not far from happening to us right here. You've got to, you've got to stay up with what's going on in the news, otherwise it'll go totally over your head. You say, oh, that could never happen among us. You know, you've heard that attitude all the time. You see it, oh, that could never, I don't want to know, so that can never happen to me. Well, just because you don't want to know doesn't mean it won't, right? That's the height of ignorance. But check it out. It's already starting. This is a dream by someone else who's not a member of the church. I'm a U.S. citizen born and raised in New England. My English and Scots-Irish ancestors came to this country in the 1650s and 1700s. I currently live in Virginia. I'm a husband of the father of two teenagers. I'm a Buddhist. I tell you this so you may judge what I share below. I'm not sure of the meaning and your interpretations are welcome. I hope this may be of help. If not, please feel free to ignore it. So, you know, even non-members are having these kind of warnings. And this person obviously comes from, you know, pioneers to this country. So, I've been experiencing a number of terrifying dreams over the past two years. 
I've awakened from many of these screaming from all but one of them with my heart pounding. Many of my dream experiences have been purely knowing or feeling. Others have been only visual, while in other dreams I've been able to observe and hear directly. In many of the dreams there is somebody who guides my visions. In others, I've had the feeling that I'm eavesdropping or spying. Some have been symbolic, while others have been very specific. So very common experiences others are having are members of the church or other Christians, directly or indirectly, some, on, some having a guide and some having no guide. Guides being angels who help show things. Two years ago, my dream started by my witnessing a vast and pernicious evil entering this earth. The evil now walks among us in the shadows, assisted by a network of powerful humans. <clears throat> well, it almost sounds like these evils are not human when he's drawing this kind of comparison. But there are powerful humans, and as we know, they have names like the Illuminati and people like that. <clears throat> uh, again, these are things that a lot of people don't subscribe to, but the more you get into these visions, the more they all you know, confirm one another. Its power is beyond human comprehension, while Satan's power is. I experienced an instantiation in four dreams over the course of three months. The evil started out as a black fog that hovered near the ground. Remember that darkness the scripture talked about previously that covered the whole earth? A black fog that hovered near the ground. In each dream, the evil becoming more organized, more focused, and more physically powerful. You know, a generation ago, the things that are happening today in this culture, the things that people are reporting, YouTube videos and other reports in journals and and blog sites, wherever, these things, both good and evil, these things a generation ago, you never saw them. But now they're almost commonplace. And all, you know, all moving toward this, these visions of the future or the near future that are, you know, such as this. It was like looking away, it was like looking for a way into our earth because it was coming from another dimension in other words, I was powerless to stop it. It was like the gates of hell that Jesus said would not prevail against his disciples. But does that mean that they would prevail against others? Well, yes, by implication so. The, the gates of hell would not prevail against Christians so long as they confess Christ and rebellion of the testimony of Jesus. That Isaiah teaches. But everybody else who's not valiant, yes, the gates of hell will prevail against them. And what's in hell? Well, Satan and his legions, looking for a way to this earth. It was looking for a way into our earth. I was powerless to stop it. I felt like a child hiding in a closet, just watching, terrified for my life if I was discovered. Well, this man, because he had no priesthood, no gospel to direct him, to guide him, no Holy Spirit, he's a Buddhist, so what is he going to do? Of course he'd be in fear. But this adds to the authenticity of the vision, does it not? In the last dream, the evil entered our earthly realm. It was pure black. It was from these dreams that I woke up screaming. Have you ever woken up from a dream screaming? No, it's something horrible when that happens. And this is Randy from Gunnison. That is Gunnison, Colorado. And he's published a lot of stuff. And uh, a lot of it is very interesting. He's a very sick man. 
he suffered horrendously, kind of like Spencer. And the Lord kind of compensates him by giving him these visions, dreams. Compensates for his suffering, his horrendous suffering. When my life left for work, wife left for work, I went back to the bedroom and lay down on the bed. Immediately I was engulfed in an incredibly deep sleep. Then I heard the voice of the Lord ask, Are you ready to begin day one? Because he had been promised by the Lord, according to him, that there would be three days when the Lord would open his mind to many things. I am Lord, I answered. Then I was standing next to him. He took my right hand in his left hand. I saw the wound in that wrist at the time. And then I said, Then he said, Come and see. We were standing in this incredibly white room of immense proportions. I could see neither floor, walls, nor ceiling. It was white everywhere. It was a very soft but very pure white. And he directed my attention to an area out in the vast whiteness, and the earth appeared. I could say that it was a model, but that would be incorrect. It's kind of like Jeremiah and others have seen the earth from a distance, like a, like a bowl of porridge, they describe it. Well, when, you know, when, when pictures from space were taken from the moon or near the moon of the earth, indeed it did look like a bowl of porridge, with all of its cloudiness and continents and so forth. I could say it was a model, but that would be incorrect. It was instead a representation of the earth, perhaps 50 feet in diameter. First the earth appeared, and then the heavens appeared about it. As I looked at this representation of the earth, I could see incredible detail. Kind of like Moses or Enoch. I could see every stone, every grain of sand, every plant and trees, every animal, every human being, their towns and cities. Spencer and others seen the same thing. If I looked at an area, it would come up from the surface like a projection and demonstrate the most profound detail. In other words, the moment he would focus on something, the whole thing would become apparent to him. Come and see, said the Lord, and I was looking down on northern Iraq. I could see the mountains north of Mosul. Now, Mosul has recently been captured by ISIL, by IS, the Islamic State. And apparently there's going to be an attempt now by the Iraqi army, empowered by the Americans, to retake Mosul. We shall see. And I could see the immense caverns in those mountains. And within those caverns, I could see three gates. Kind of like... You know, Spencer saw in the North Countries where people on a terrestrial level had hidden themselves inside the earth. And we mentioned that at the time that that too agrees with the prophets who spoke of his people coming out of the earth from under the earth as well. That's in a previous lecture in this same series. But these caverns don't seem that friendly, as we'll see in a moment. I could see three gates. Then this area was hit by an earthquake, and the mountains collapsed into the system of caverns. Hundreds died in the quake, and thousands were injured. A world leader doesn't say who he is, but it becomes apparent that he is the Antichrist, or the equivalent of the beast in the book of Revelation. The king of Assyria, perhaps, in the book of Isaiah went there on a so-called humanitarian mission. While he was there, he and a select group of high-ranking occultists, these same people that we read about a moment ago, these elite humans, or 
uh, Illuminati, so to speak, went to the gates, uh, excuse, to the location of the gates. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. And that's in the book of Revelation, as we'll see in a moment. He opened the great lock, removed the chains, and opened a gigantic door. Then he called forth the spirit of Abaddon. As Abaddon, the, the ancient Antichrist spirit, left the bottomless pit, the door was resealed behind him. Of course, he's not alone. He and his hordes leave. But he represents them. He's the leader of them, as we'll see in a moment. The Lord said, This is the sign that I have released them, the powers of evil, that is, to carry out their work of destruction. So this is going to be a sign in the earth. And if this sign that Randy from Gunnison actually you know, has given here, or the Lord has given, comes to pass, they will know that this next scenario is also going to happen right after it. Then there was a short interval between the release of Abaddon, his possession of the man who became the Antichrist, and this bringing of war to the entire world. So this Antichrist spirit of Abaddon comes out of the bottomless pit, possesses the beast or this person, who then becomes the Antichrist. Now you saw this very thing already in the Second World War, where you saw Hitler and his cronies become possessed of these same evil spirits, or these similar evil spirits, maybe not as bad as this evil spirit. But you look at the person's life, you know, before he became Hitler, the Fuhrer of Germany, he didn't look like that different. But once he gained that kind of power, he then looked like a, a, a raging devil, a raging Satan all his raging tirades. You see, there's something with this guy. He's just not himself or something. You know, He's allowed that evil spirit to take possession of him, and he just rants and raves, just like Satan does. So with this empowerment, there is a short interval between the, the time when this kind of this evil spirit takes hold, and then when the Antichrist actually brings war to the entire world, and in Visions of Glory and in Isaiah, it is the king of Assyria who, who launches this world conquest in his attempts to annihilate many nations, de depopulate the world, which is an agenda of the Illuminati. And this is more recent, this very recent. On January 26, 2015, I had surgery on my lumbar spine St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado. I spent a couple of days in post-surgical recovery on the eighth floor when I was moved to the rehabilitation wing on the third floor. While I was there, I had the following dream. But before I share this, I wish to state that I was completely recovered from anesthesia and was not at any pain medication. In my dream, my wife and I had joined a small survival group community within a few miles south of Gunnison. Now, you know, this is kind of the a possible scenario that many people would be contemplating for themselves, especially among Christian groups out there, these militia groups and others like them. And this is not to say that Randy himself would do this, but that if he was part of one of these groups, this kind of thing might happen to him. The community had developed a ring, of, a ring system of defense. There were ten families. At the first sign of trouble, each family would go to what was essentially a pillbox, in these, there was food, water, ammo, weapons, blankets, medical supplies, etc. It was the responsibility of each family to go to their secured area and establish communications 
with the family on the left and right. There was also a central facility which would take reports from each of the groups, collect and collate all important information. So this seems like a pretty reasonable thing for some people to do if they didn't you know, rely completely on the Lord, but were willing to kind of deal with it themselves on their own. Right? Because for the saints, there was another scenario. In the dream, I was awakened by gunshots coming from Gunnison. A lot of gunshots. And then there were two sharp explosions, the more shooting. I reached for the light switch, but the power was out. With no power and working in complete darkness, I dressed as I had practiced many times, grabbed my 45 gun belt and strapped it on. Still in complete darkness, I went to the closet, put on my flak vest and my shotgun bandolier. As I left, I grabbed my 12-gauge, then I woke my wife and told her, Plan Zebra. Gunfire was still coming from Gunnison, but it was becoming more random. Then there was a loud retort of a rifle from the position to our right. I switched on a group of special infrared lights. Wow, these guys were really prepared, weren't they? <laughs> in these, we could see people out to about 100 feet. Several figures were moving around in this light. According to the established plan, I yelled, Halt! Put away any weapons you have on the ground and advance be recognized, but as I yelled, halt, they attacked. The first one was a big man. He had no weapons. He was coming at me with his arms outstretched <clears throat> to choke the life out of me. <clears throat> I put around a 12-gauge buck into his chest. He went down, and then I saw demons coming out of the ground and flowing into his body. You remember visions of glory where demons try to possess bodies. So, even as a person is dying, they still want to get into a body and have that experience. And even try to make it into a zombie-like state if they can. Then he went back on his, he was back on his feet and coming at me again. This time I put a 12-gauge buck around one of his legs. He went down again and blackness poured out of him and disappeared into the earth. Well, the blackness you know, would be the evil spirits, I guess. Another man came out of the darkness. He was carrying a semi-automatic rifle. He saw my wife and shot her twice in the chest. I knew <clears throat> that when she hit the ground, she was dead. I shot the man with the rifle, blowing his left leg off at the hip. I went to her to make sure no demons tried to inhabit her body. <clears throat> then I heard the voice of the Lord. Sharon is with me. She will be restored to you in the fullness of time. Nonetheless, I was stricken by a powerful sense of grief and loss. Well... You know, these things too have their precedence where uh, Satan tries to possess the body of Adam. And, um, yeah, so if you are, in a, if you are already <clears throat> so-called in an unrighteous state subscribing to things of the devil, you'd be more easily possessed by the devil. So perhaps this man who was possessed even momentarily had, was not a righteous man. So, but in her case, she was, and so she was protected from that happening. When the sun came up, the sky was a sickening purple color. I could see demons flying through the air and more coming up through the ground. It was obviously obvious that the gates of hell had been thrown open. People were coming out of Gunnison trying to get away from these creatures any way they could. So these creatures... now. It seems as if what Spencer saw in his vision is now almost coming out in the open. You can see it visibly. Or if, if not, 
at least you knew they were there, and people were trying to get out of, you know, built-up places and cities where they were more numerous. Most of them died and became possessed by multiple demonic entities, and then they came at us. So, again, if you're not ready for being able to withstand these evil spirits, they will possess you. That should ring bells. The fight was terrible. I can honestly say that I never imagined how terrible such combat would be. Just as soon as the demons left the bodies they were possessing, we would burn the bodies, that's when they were dead, burn the bodies so that they could not be used against us again. You know, he also describes in the same blog how they did that in the Second World War with Japanese. The Japanese whom they killed or who were wounded, they would come at them even when they were supposedly dead possessed by evil spirits. So they, the policy they had was to make sure that they would not do that by burning the bodies so they couldn't be possessed anymore. So there actually be precedence of this happening in, war, in wartime. Finally, through my grief, I call on the Archangel Michael and the army of the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. As few of us who were left shot the bodies, they would seal the demons and take them to a place where they would be sealed until the Lord called them forth unto judgment. This is Michael and his angels would do that. In my dream, it was a hundred, hundred times worse than the account I've given. So I guess we cannot even conceive of this happening until we're right in the middle of it. Hopefully none of us here, or anybody listening to this, or anyone who loves Christ would be experiencing this. But certainly among the wicked, this is a very plausible scenario, I would consider. Charles D. Evans he seems to put his stamp on this very scenario when he says, the seal of the dread menace of despair was stamped on every human visage. Well, how could that be unless there were devils and demons everywhere? Men fell exhausted, appalled, and trembling. Every element of agitated nature seemed a demon of wrathful fury. So they're in very nature, they're in the elements, they're all around you. Dense clouds, blacker than midnight, Obscure the sunlight with a thunder that reverberated with intonations which shook the earth. Darkness reigned unrivaled and supreme. So he obviously was seeing something very similar than what Randy from Gunnison and the other visionaries had seen. And what our other scriptures, the ones we know about, the ones we have, not the ones in the seal, on the seal, seal portion of the Book of Mormon, not the large plates of Nephi, not the other sealed books, what they're talking about. Now we get into end-time prophecies of evil spirits, doctrine and covenants. I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. And he that repents not, from him shall be taken away even the light which he has received. For my spirit shall not always strive with man, said the Lord of hosts. So when the Spirit of the Lord stops striving with you, then what happens? You're given wholly over to the other spirits who be who you have, whom you have been willing to listen to and obey. And when that happens, you are completely taken over because the Spirit of the Lord has no power over you. You chose it. And again, verily, I say unto you, O habits of the earth, I, the Lord, am willing to make these things known unto all flesh, for I am no respecter of persons, and I will that all men shall know that the day speedily cometh, the hour is not yet. It's the time of Joseph Smith. But it's night at hand when peace shall be taken from the earth and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. 
Well, where is his dominion? Well, in those nether regions, of course, that are going to be opened, so that then he'll, when they are loosed, he'll have power over his own dominion on this earth, right among us. Where else? And also the Lord shall have power over his saints, and shall reign in their midst, and shall come down in judgment upon Edomia, or the world. Edomia's Edom, which is one of the categories of Babylon the Great in the book of Isaiah, or Greater Babylon, I call it, that Isaiah establishes structurally in his book. Like John the Revelator's Babylon the Great, takes its cue from Isaiah. Edomia is a part of that, but it is that part which follows Esau, and who, was, who had the birthright, but he sold it for a mess of pottage. So it includes the apostates of the Lord's own people, in other words. So this, again, this dichotomy of the one and, and the other, great wickedness on the one hand, and great good, the Lord having power over his saints on the other. But use the word saints carefully, because it really does mean sanctified ones. Not just people who've been baptized and received a remission of their sins, who have been redeemed from the fall, who are on a terrestrial level, who are justified, but they're not yet sanctified, perfected. That's why the prophet Joseph would say to the saints, make sure you're calling election, because it'll mean everything in this time to come. Now we go to Revelation. There was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels. Well, I guess they do that more than once. And they did not prevail, nor was their place found any more in heaven. And great, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Into the earth. And I heard a voice, loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down, we accused him before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. That is in the book of Revelation, and it seems to tie in with those who are beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. That they loved not their lives unto death. Kind of like the Nephites at the end of their history, who also, if they denied the Christ, they would be let live, but if they did not deny the Christ, they would be killed by the Lamanites. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. Well, that time in this case will be this end-time scenario of the great showdown between good and evil, between the forces of Christ and the forces of, of Satan. So do you begin to see that these, these visions that have been saying, that some would say, oh, oh, he's just making that up or something, you know, that they really do tie in with the scriptures, both the ones we read before and these ones. Revelation 9. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star, star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. As he opened the bottomless pit, there arose a smoke out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Well, guess what the smoke is? You know, it's that same cloud of evil spirits. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, to whom was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. 
has commanded them that they should not hurt the grasses of the earth, nor any green thing or tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. The seal of God was in the foreheads was had by the 144,000 servants of God, translated beings on the level of seraphim, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So in other words, they could have power on everybody else. But of course, if those 12,000 of each tribe were proxy savers to others, they could probably shield them against those powers as well. Because they, all of them, are proxy saviors and bring God's people out, bring the elect out from dispersion to Zion and to her stakes. But to them was given, it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment, torment was like the torment of a scorpion when he stings a man. Have you ever been stung by a scorpion? Well, there are different kinds of scorpions, some more powerful than others. So it's not pleasant, is it? And can kill you. And those then, men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die, but death will flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns, of gold, crowns like gold. Their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were as those of lions. And they had breastplates resembling breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like scorpions. There were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men for five months. Well, you know, some have likened this to like, like helicopters and you know, firing at people and poisoning people and so forth. Possibly, but whoever they are, they're led by an evil, evil ruler. They're not the ones that are familiar to us from our own, from our own forces here in this country defending freedom, for sure. And those evil spirits probably took other shapes as well, but this, this one may have caught his attention. We have to allow that there might be other forms that they would take as well. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, though in the Greek his name is Apollyon. So again, this ties in with what Randy from Gunnison saw and others whom we, whom we quoted. Revelation 18. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lit up with his glory. And this is when the time of the end of the day of judgment, the day of vengeance that comes upon the world, when the tables are turned upon the enemies of God's people, and Israel, the elect, are delivered into the millennial age, and the earth you know, starts a millennial age of peace. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen, has become the abode of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and abominable bird. So in that interim, again, the abode of devils and foul spirit happens during the time of Babylon's fall. And when it is over, then they all go somewhere, but they don't remain on the earth, to be sure. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river, the Euphrates, and the waters thereof were dried up in order that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles that go forth to the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to the battle in that great day, that great day of Almighty God.
so there are three Antichrist figures, in other words, that are kind of leading this onslaught against all good. The dragon, we've discussed that in the previous lecture, who he is. The beast, who seems to be the equivalent of the king of Assyria or king of Babylon, the same person in the book of Isaiah, and the false prophet, who is yet out there. We have yet to have an inkling of who he is. Revelation 11. There was given me a reed resembling a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. But the court that is outside the temple, leave out and don't measure it, for it is given to the, to the Gentiles. And the holy city they will tread underfoot for 42 months. That is three and a half years. And I will empower my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 months clothed in sackcloth. That's also the same period. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks who stand before the throne of God the whole earth, who stand before the God of the whole earth, if any man will hurt them, fire will issue from their mouths and devour their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in that manner be killed. So these two are, these two witnesses are also on the translated level, they have power over the elements. So they are seraph category in the book of Isaiah. So it's apparent that this is Jerusalem that says, these have power to shut the heavens so that it doesn't rain in the days of their prophesying. Kind of like Nephi, the son of Helaman, in the Book of Mormon, or Elijah in the Old Testament. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with all manner of plagues as often as they want. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And those of the peoples, kindreds, languages, and nations, those Gentiles, will see their bodies, their dead bodies, for three and a half days, and will not let their bodies be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and will make merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. Well, because they had power over them. Now this seems to be a great showdown between those who are possessing part of Jerusalem today and those who are for the Lord, the God of Israel. And you can figure out perhaps who those two sides might be. And after three and a half days, the Spirit of God, Spirit of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven telling them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And that same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the rest were frightened and gave glory to the God of heaven. So you see that quite a number of people who are not of God, who are not of Israel or of Christ, live in, in Jerusalem to this day. And they're getting more angry by the day against the Jews and against Christians. And this whole dark cloud of, of um, you know, rampant terrorism is spreading over the entire area today. And no doubt will surround Jerusalem, as, as we've just read, until it has power over the city for those three and a half years. 
I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of that dragon, of the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And he set a seal over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were up. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. And so it was pointed out to me uh, by, what's your name? Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. That, that evil spirit of the Lord, as John Smith said in the footnote, was not of the Lord. It was an evil spirit whom the Lord allowed, but the, spirit, the evil spirit was not of the Lord himself. And so it is here. Satan is not of the Lord, but he, the Lord allows him to act in accordance to his own good pleasure when he feels that people need to be tried in their allegiance to him, whether they are willing to serve him and do his will or not. And so it is here, so that Satan is kept all his time before he is completely destroyed to keep providing opposition to the Lord's own people, or to those who claim to be the Lord's own people, even to the end of the millennium. And then shall he be loosed for a little season that he may beget, that he may gather together his armies. And Michael, the seventh angel, even the archangel, shall gather together his armies, even the hosts of heaven. And the devil shall gather together his armies, even the hosts of hell, and shall come up to battle against Michael and his armies. And then cometh the battle of the great God, and the devil and his army shall be cast away into their own place, and they shall not have power over the saints any more at all. For Michael shall fight their battles, and shall overcome him who seeketh the throne of him, who sitteth upon the throne of God, even the Lamb. This is the glory of God, and the sanctified, and they shall not any more see death. That is the end. So we have, we started kind of late, so we'll have about 10 minutes for questions. Yeah, you're asking about almost a competition between Netanyahu, Israel's Prime Minister, and Obama, who is trying to make peace with basically a nuclear Iran for all intents and purposes. And it speaks volumes of the fact this is happening today and what the outcome might be. Netanyahu was invited to address Congress by leader of the, sorry? Speaker of the House, House, yeah. So he said yes, but now it's been politicized and used as a tool, a convenient tool, to mock him, to mock Netanyahu, and, and even to try to get rid of him in Israel. Because now it has empowered other politicians in Israel who are neck and neck with Netanyahu as they never have been before. And so this seems to be the intent, the deliberate intent, that has developed out of this invitation, which is not, not the intent to begin with. And I think it speaks volumes to me and to anybody who, who is looking seriously at this situation over there of the fact that the president of this country is trying to make peace with a nation that is promoting terrorism all throughout the Middle East, which just recently had its airplanes and, and forces destroy a mock-up of, a, of an American aircraft carrier in the uh, Straits of Hormuz, in the area of the Straits of Hormuz, close to its area, and which calls America the great Satan and Israel the little Satan, and is bent on Israel's destruction, and openly said that.
So what is really going on, I believe, is that Netanyahu is, is fighting for the life of his country and can't see any other course, and he will take any opportunity to express those things to the world that nobody seems to be listening to anymore because so many people are, you know, as, as it says here, are subscribing to the dragon, which in Isaiah is the pharaoh of Egypt, which is a type and shadow of the great latter-day superpower of America. And so we have this equivalent where one Satan is going to the other Satan trying to make peace, and so to speak. And the only one you know, in the world standing up for, for right, for truth, for what's really happening is the Prime Minister of Israel, who has, who has constantly telling his people to read their history, read their scriptures, read the prophecies and so forth. He's very much aware of these, of these things. And so I think that he's very, he's valiant. Hopefully he'll be reelected. If not, well, anyway, whether he is or not, terrible things could happen shortly for Israel. The kind of things we just read where the Gentiles have power over the city for three and a half years, where two witnesses have to come to the rescue to hold the nations at bay, entirely overthrowing Israel. Now, as we have a scenario here where the saints go into the wilderness, so we'll have a scenario over there where their saints will undoubtedly, as they convert to Christ, will go into the wilderness likewise. So what we see happening in and around Jerusalem may not be the entire scenario of things happening over there. But we'll have possibly have two scenarios of those who've gone into the wilderness and are protected there as Saints will be going into the wilderness and protected there. So we have two things on a parallel, one with the other, during this evil time. But I, I strongly feel we ought to be praying for the situation and not just looking at it from a distance and saying, oh yeah, I wonder how that's going to turn out. Or, you know, becoming part of a politicized situation and buying in to the liberal media who are basically parroting or chosen men and women who are parroting back with what the administration wants people to hear. And, and Satan, we know, is a liar from the beginning. And everything he says is a lie. And show me one thing that was spoken that's actually come true. That you can show today that he has said that has come true. Not a single one. It's all bluff and politics. And, yeah, so... This is a real good question. You have another question. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. He is, Netanyahu is staring down a double-barreled shotgun. And this very peace accord, so-called, so could be the, the very means that would allow Iran to, you know, instead of having their nuclear facilities destroyed or shut down to build its bomb and nuke Tel Aviv as Sarah Manet saw in her vision back in 1979 when the world was an entirely different place. So it all seems to be progressing toward that very fulfillment that people are pretending to try to avoid or that a certain person in our country who's leading this nation is pretending to try to avoid. But in fact, it's actually a collusion between 
the two, these same two powers. And you wonder, well, that was his agenda from the beginning then, when he ascended to power in this country, because I don't believe the guy has changed. I believe he always was what he is now. Uh, what, are the, what is happening in our country that are preparation for beheadings? I'll just go on some of the conservative websites and look up certain keywords, and you'll find plenty of evidence there. Yeah, it's not for me to say that or do that, but if he's asking that question or the person is asking that question, then they haven't really researched the subject of their own, and they need to do so. Yes, this is from the webcast, right? Yes. How do you bind Satan so that you're not completely continually tormented by them. And if the evil spirits come back after a blessing of casting them out, then what do you do next, basically? What, what, is, what, what do you do? Well, I would say the same thing as Jesus said to those disciples who could not cast out that evil spirit. Just go by the, what the scriptures said, what Jesus tells you. This, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting or by other good works, and offering yourself as a sacrifice, as a proxy savior on behalf of those who are afflicted by evil spirits, or afflicted with anything. And become a proxy savior, and do so under the terms of the Davidic covenant, which is what proxy saviors, being a proxy savior is all about. Things we've discussed in class quite a bit, so in the earlier lectures in the fall. So I would say go there, find out all about it, and take it on. Don't just capitulate to evil. These things, if they're present with you, then the Lord is expecting you in this configuration of circumstances that you're in to do something about it, not just do nothing or feel helpless against it. Because what is the story telling us of the great evil and the great good simultaneous? That the great good rises above the great evil. It has to. And so you have to. At least that's what the scriptures are telling you. Follow the pattern of the scriptures. And it will all come about. And ask the Lord to empower you. And what he will lead you through the steps of empowerment. Through a descent phase that will then empower you in an ascent phase. And eventually, Satan will be cast out from you and yours. Or from whoever that you are dealing with. Okay, we'll end it there. And thank you for, for coming. This wasn't such a pleasant, interesting lecture, maybe not on the bright side. Next week, next week we will be talking about angels, the good angels, and their activities and their mission. This concludes Lecture 14, The Workings of Evil Spirits. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Abraham Kiliati.